This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. Our Voices is a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Today on Our Voices, we talk with Joey Cush and Dave Johnson, who are partners at Johnson Cush in Colorado Springs. Joey Cush is slight of frame, but determined and passionate to have her voice heard. Her passion for learning and new experiences led her to the Far East and a love for Chinese and Eastern cultures. She is a president of the Colorado Bar Association for 2021 to 2022 and has a strategy of embracing storytelling and listening. It sounds like the perfect springboard for diversity and inclusivity. Dave Johnson's dad was an army medic in World War II who won the Silver Star and his mom was a teacher, so the example of living your life in service to others was early and long taught. Dave went to Notre Dame and after graduation, he volunteered in the Peace Corps and found himself on the Marshall Islands for two years. His return to the States and law school led him to his criminal law career, trying the first death penalty case by himself in Missouri under the then newest death penalty laws. Dave is a past president of the Colorado Bar Association and has served in many substantial leadership roles throughout his legal career. Listen in as we talk to Joey and Dave about life, leadership, and how their lives collided at a bar association function. Thank you for joining us for Our Voices today. My name is Nicole Spraza. I am a solo practitioner in the Denver metro area, practicing family law and civil litigation. And with me, I have a co-host, Bonnie Schreiner. Hi, I'm Bonnie Schreiner. I'm a lawyer. I'm an arbitrator. I'm a counselor. And I'm a freelance writer. And I'm glad to be here. And today we have with us in the studio, Joey Cush, who is the current CBA president, as well as Dave Johnson, who is a former CBA president, and they have a firm together, Johnson and Cush, and we are delighted to have them here today. So thank you for taking the time to not just be here with us, but drive all the way up to be here with us. Our pleasure. Very nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Absolutely. So the basic format of the Our Voices podcasts are who you were, who you are, and who you will be. So I we're excited to have both of you here. I know that you both have just some pretty incredible and impressive stories and backgrounds. So we're going to dive right in. So I think I might start with you, Joey. So tell me about young Joey growing up. Oh, young Joey. Um, I was a quiet child for a period of time. And then I found my voice sometime in high school um, when I decided to stand up to the cheerleading coach because I felt like she was treating the cheerleaders unfairly. Um, And I was on the cheerleading squad and I felt this need to speak up in front of the entire class because actually back in high school, it was an actual class for us. And um, I gave a speech to the entire class about how our coach was treating us unfairly. Um, It did not go over very well, Hmm. surprisingly. Um, Definitely expected better results. 
But uh, pretty much when I was younger, like I said, I was a young, shy child. But then with time, found my voice. And uh, since high school, have con- I've continued to express my voice very loudly. Well, I'm also interested because I know that you knew that you wanted to be a lawyer pretty early on. So as a quiet child, what what led you to wanting to be a lawyer? What did you what did that look like for you? It, it began in fourth grade. Um, and I grew up in a family that was very service oriented. We always were focused on giving back and being part of the community. And I thought that, you know, when when I was thinking about what do I want to be when I grow up, how do I give back and really help others around me in the best way possible? Um, I had one student of the month, and they, my teacher asked me in particular, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was giving it some thought already, and I thought, you know, it's either going to be, a, I'm either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Well, I was horrible at science, not great at math, and I thought, well, you know, I think I could be a lawyer. I think I could do that. Um, so I told the teacher I wanted to be a lawyer, and I was just one of those determined children that I said, once I made my mind up on something, I, I stuck with it. And so from fourth grade on, I was just really dedicated to becoming a lawyer, and here I am. And I assume that somewhere along the way, you met Dave. I did. Dave, do you want to tell them how we met? Yeah, never ask a guy how you met. Um, <laughs> My memory is that it was at the uh, El Paso County Bar's, um, I believe, 100th anniversary gala. It was a formal dinner, um, and after the after the dinner, a um, couple weeks later, um, Joey called me, and she had told me at the dinner that she was going to touch base with me because she wanted to talk about how to grow her practice. She was with a different firm at the time, and so she called me up, and she took me to lunch and we talked about her practice as it was and and how to grow her practice and and um, I was impressed with her um, and so we continued to kind of chat off and on informally we I think we had a couple more lunches and then at some point um, I picked up a little bit that she might be less than 100% happy where she was for a lot of reasons and So I kind of floated the balloon of, you know, maybe she could come over and work with me. And uh, we kept talking about that. And eventually I offered her a job and she accepted. The two of you share a few other things in common. You were raised, uh, you have an intact family and were were raised uh, by your parents and had siblings. What, tell us a little bit about the early part of you. I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, people who know me know I'm a huge, dedicated, lifelong Cardinals fan. Um, my parents uh, were uh, met at the University of Minnesota before World War II. And my dad was uh, uh, graduating from the University of Minnesota in December of 1941, which also happened to be when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And so he went off to war in early 1942. My mom had a very uh, glamorous job working for a large department store in downtown Minneapolis as a bridal planner and purchaser and buyer and stuff. They weren't married at this time. They weren't married at this time. They had dated all through, I think, for three years at the University of Minnesota. So dad goes off to war. He's in the Pacific Theater. He becomes a medic, and he sees the horrors, the true, true horrors of war. Um, he's wounded 
uh, and wins not only the Purple Heart, but the Silver Star, which is the second highest honor on the Army side. And so the war ends. He comes home. He had proposed to my mom by letter, um, and they had agreed they would get married. And so he comes home, and he gets off the boat. He takes several trains from Seattle to Minneapolis, and they get married on the 28th of December, 1945. He had not seen her for three and a half years. He had seen all these terrible things. She had had this very glamorous life, and yet they got married. They had three kids, and they were married for 44 years before my dad died. It's one of the greatest stories of the greatest generation of the fact that this couple had had had, had these very diverse experiences when they were young, but they were dedicated and they 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 were uh, wonderful parents. Uh, we were raised Catholic. I have 21 years of Catholic education under my belt. I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic university, Catholic high school, and Catholic law school. So, <laughs> you ask me something about the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> You both had parents who um, came from somewhat of a life of service. How do you each think that that's affected you? Well, uh, tremendously. My my mom and dad uh, gave back to the community in a lot of ways. My mom volunteered a lot at the school, the grade school I attended. My dad was a Boy Scout leader. Um, uh, he coached my baseball teams when I was little. Um, my mom did Girl Scout stuff and was very active with us as children. And so, um, and they taught us that, you know, and, and I think my education too, growing up in a, a Catholic uh, education, that's one of the tenets of, of what we do. Um, Notre Dame pounded into me that you give back to the community and that you have to share your talent and that. Uh, you're expected to do this. This is not an option. This is something you owe the community. And so it was kind of second nature, really. Uh, it was not something that was new to us when we were growing up. So my dad was a medic um, in the Army, like I mentioned earlier, and um, he obviously saw some situations that were not ideal. Um, so he obviously impressed upon us the just how incredibly again fortunate we are as people and that we should always give back to everyone around us so because there's so many others that have less than what we have uh, my mom actually is been a huge huge role model for me she was actually an alternative high school teacher recently retired she did that for 21 years and her students still come by to see her um, they just really have this strong attachment to her, and she will stop everything to be to help them and to listen to them and to go to their baby showers and their weddings and graduations. I mean, she just constantly gives. And just throughout my, my entire childhood, my parents just always said, your life, your success is not measured by money, by your prestige or your accolades, but truly how many people you can impact. And if you can leave a good impression and help someone around you, that's success. That's what makes you successful. And that's how I live my life. That's all I want to do is help people around me and hope hope that something that I do makes their lives a little bit better because I 
by all means, by all objective means, I have a very, very fortunate life. Something I've told my daughter since she was little is that service is its own reward. You get way out more out of it than you put back into it. And she's she's learned that lesson. She's very involved in her community, and she provides a lot of public service um, where she lives. And um, it's true. I, I, every every opportunity I've had to do something to give back to the community, it gives me way more uh, satisfaction and and joy in my life than I ever put out to it. So um, it's just it's a self-generating because it I do it because it makes me feel good too, and I get a lot out of it. You were always kind of a um, a good guy. You still are. Um, but thank you, Bonnie. <laughs> you only you only ever got one detention in high school. That yeah. was impressive. Um, but then you went to college, and what? Tell me about what that was, because that's a lifelong thing too for you. Yeah, um, I went to the University of Notre Dame, <clears throat> which was my mother's dream. I I didn't have Notre Dame on my radar. I was going to go to St. Louis Shoe and go to medical school at St. Louis Shoe because they had a very good medical school. So I was pretty well geared up to go to St. Louis University. And my mom really wanted me to go to Notre Dame for a lot of reasons. And so I applied there. And I, I went to Notre Dame in February of 1967 for an interview because they were doing on-campus interviews for every incoming freshman. Every applicant had an interview on campus. Well, I saw the campus and fell in love with the place. So so I went to Notre Dame, and about the second or third week of my freshman year, I met a group of friends in the same hall. And we have been lifelong friends for now 54 years. We met in the summer, in the September of 1967, and we get together annually. And we, we, we email every day between ourselves. Um, so the, the, the friendship that I have from the, the six guys, used to be seven, but one of us died, um, is one of the great treasures of my life. Well, Joey talked about maybe going to medical school was one of her notions. What about you? Yeah, I, I, I gave up long after fourth grade, though. I, <laughs> I hung in there until I was a sophomore at Notre Dame, and it dawned on me that math and science were not my strong suit. And so I, I went from pre-med to history and suddenly got straight A's, and <laughs> there you go. When you graduated from... Notre Dame then, did you go straight to law school? No, uh, I went in the Peace Corps. This was the late 60s, early 70s. I graduated from Notre Dame in 1971. So height of the Vietnam War, height of the protests, height, height of everything, you know. And I was a liberal Democrat, and I swore to myself in my junior year that I was not going to be what we called a limousine liberal who talked fancy and made all kinds of fancy talk but never did anything. And so I worked on some political campaigns when I was a junior and senior, uh, basically candidates that were against the war in Vietnam. And and then when I graduated, I went in the Peace Corps and went to the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. There, when you went to the Marshall Islands, um, first of all, what language do they speak? Marshallese, which is spoken by about 26,000 people on the planet. <laughs> and what was that like for you? It was life-changing. Um, I think you and I talked a little bit about this. Uh, I was on an outer island all by myself, 
I taught school to sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And so we trained in Hawaii for 10 weeks. We went to the Marshalls. We were in the district center for three or four more weeks until our boats came, and then the boat took us out to the outer island. And so I was on a little island called Ujjayi. And I remember that it was a Sunday afternoon when I arrived, and they dropped me over the side of the boat and onto another little little motorboat, and then that boat took me into the into the island. And I remember thinking then that this was going to be a challenge, but reflecting on it now, 50, 60 years later, that's the, that's the most um, difficult thing I ever did in my life, and it was the most courageous thing I ever did in my life, because I had no idea what I was getting into, and I was all by myself. So I became pretty self-sufficient and uh, got a big worldview, because this was a very different culture, very different lifestyle. These folks were, were quite poverty stricken but they were happy and they were they they had family was very important to them they were incredibly kind to me took good care of me and it gave me a, a much broader world view about life in other worlds other cultures other ways of doing things and um, opened my eyes a lot Joey I think you had an experience as well on that half of the world yeah, so I, I have been very fortunate to live and work in um, Dharamsala, India, uh, Beijing, China, uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand, Hanoi, Vietnam, and then I went to law school briefly in, in Tokyo, Japan. So um, I've greatly, I have great appreciation for Asian culture in particular. And uh, as, as Dave pointed out, just the emphasis of family and living life simply and happily, you know, um, with not a lot of material things. So I've definitely, I started in 2005 uh, traveling out east, and I, I intend to do so indefinitely because I really feel like a sense of, I don't know, my, my heart is there. When I'm there in different, especially in China, it just feels the energy there and everything that's happening there. There's just so much around you. Um, that just really gives you that sense of, I don't want to say purpose, but I, I, again, it just it just brings me to a place there. I feel comfort and security, which is interesting because I don't blend in very well. Um, <laughs> I try, but I don't. Um, but yeah, and then every every time I travel, I've always lived with a local family or in a local neighborhood, so I've really immersed myself in the culture. As much as possible. Again, I don't really blend in well, but I, I try to learn the language. Um, I eat the local food. I live the way everyone else is living. So I really have that true experience and that connection to the culture and the community around me, um, which is eye-opening. And it, it definitely leaves an uh, everlasting impression, as Dave pointed out. I mean, it really just, you really feel like your life's transformed when you're immersed in something that you aren't accustomed to. Do you think somehow that assists in a notion of leadership that and the ability to lead? I think that being exposed to a culture that you didn't grow up in or are not um, familiar with, I think that you are forced to learn how to be patient. Um, you have to be a, a listener because you really have to understand what's going on around you, be you know, 
able to pick up on advice. I will never forget one morning in China, in Beijing, I was so sick and I just wanted to eat my breakfast, but I was holding my chopsticks, my quiet's wrong, and, and this, this older gentleman comes up to me and he yanks the chopsticks out of my hands and he starts teaching me how to like hold them correctly. And I was so frustrated, but I, he finally broke through with me because I was like, okay, I have to be patient. I just have to learn. He's clearly trying to help me. And within 15 minutes, I was picking up little pieces of rice and it was so much easier to use my, my chopsticks. <laughs> I was like, this is great. But going back to your question, I mean, that's, that's leadership in so many ways of, of being okay to let go and not always be in control. Watch your surroundings, learn from those who are around you. And like I said, listen and be be aware, you know, and, and be introspective. That's the other thing is being okay that you're not going to be perfect and you're not going to know the solution always. Um, so that's what I've learned traveling abroad. Also, and, I, and this goes without saying empathy, you know, really understanding and being present with people um, and realizing how incredibly fortunate we are to live where we live and have the luxuries that we have um it's just it's we we've got a really fortunate way of life in the united states it's not perfect we've got a lot of flaws but we we really have a lot to be thankful for you talk a lot about or you you were just talking about empathy and traveling and kind of how that exposure really makes you, um, I guess, realize the privilege that you do have in the life that you live day to day. How does that translate into, for example, I know that one of the platforms for your CBA year this year is storytelling. How does it lend itself to storytelling? I I go back, I'm going to go back to 2005. So when I, I taught English to Tibetan refugees, um, I say that, but honestly, I think they taught me a lot more than I really helped them with. Um, and, you know, hearing many of them already spoke English. So it wasn't like I was doing any, I was just helping them, right? Like walking them through how to have a more verbose conversation, I guess. But, you know, they told me a lot of stories about what they see and what they've encountered in their journey. Some of them actually had to travel from Tibet. Some of them were already born in Dharamsala. Um, and it was a great opportunity to learn about somebody in a deeper on a deeper level, um, in a more meaningful way. And I held on to that and everywhere I traveled, I always, again, going back to living in the communities that I was exposed to, like really assimilating myself to their culture and getting to know people. Um, even if it was broken conversations in, in Chinese or Japanese or Vietnamese, whatever it may be. I mean, it's people love to share their stories and who they are as people. And that just really resonates with me. I just love that. I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a superficial relationship. It's, it's something that's deeper than that. So that's where I'm at today with, with the bar. I mean, I think that we've been remote. We've been frustrated. We've been anxious. We've been fearful. We've been isolated. We we have so much negative feelings inside us on a daily basis because of what's happened over the past few years. And I really am hopeful that we can, through the CBA, 
reach out to our individual members and people who aren't members, people who perhaps are just trying to figure out where where their community is. Reach out to them and get to know them as individuals and truly engage them on a level that's higher than just getting to know what area they practice, what law school they went to, and maybe who they clerked for. And Dave, I have a couple of questions for you too, because you have a long history of leadership. What led you to leadership in your career? Well, it's probably the, the example of some people have leadership thrust upon them. And I think that's probably kind of what I would say. Um, I didn't really ever seek out uh, any leadership roles. Um, I think the first major leadership role I had was um, I'd been in Colorado Springs for, I think, six years. And I'd been active in doing some family law section stuff. And I had been on a on a committee that was drafting some forms for uh domestic violence cases back in the days when domestic violence was not on anybody's radar as being a serious problem. And so I was approached by somebody to run for the president-elect of the El Paso County Bar, and I said, okay. Uh, I was running against a magistrate, a juvenile court magistrate, who was the other candidate, and I thought, no way, I'm going to, she'd been around for a long time, and everybody knew her, and I didn't know if anybody knew me. And um, I won the election. So, um, and I enjoyed that year. Um, it was a great experience, and it taught me a lot. And then I, I was the chair of the local family law section. Then I got involved in the executive council of the family law section of the bar. Kind of rose through the ranks there, and then became the chair of the of the family law section of the Colorado bar. And really enjoyed that experience. Met a wonderful group of lawyers, including. Bonnie, who is a wonderful person to get to know uh, for a lot of reasons. She's not just a lawyer. She's a really incredibly interesting person. Um, And then when the term for the El Paso County area of the state came around for the CBA job, I was approached to put my name in the hat, or somebody called and said, can I nominate you? I said, okay. And then I became the president of the CBA. So um, but it's all, it's every, every experience has been very good, uh, very rewarding. I, I get more out of it than I ever put into it. One of the things that you also work with is the moot court teams. Can you tell me a little bit about that? My daughter, uh, who was at Palmer High School in Colorado Springs, um, she's now 31, so this was 15 years ago. Um, she's got involved in the mock trial team at Palmer in her sophomore year. And I, being a lawyer, kind of took interest in what she was doing and what she was learning. And in her junior year, they didn't have a coach. The coaches that they had had were going to go move on to something else. And so I said, okay, I'll be happy to coach. And so I coached her mock trial team for three years, one year after she graduated. Um, So her junior and senior year and then a year after she graduated. 
And it was just a wonderful experience. These high school kids are so smart, and they, they keep you on your toes. They challenge everything you say. Why do we do it this way? Why do we do it? Th- why, do, why, is, why is that rule, you know? And in, in her g- senior year, the Palmer team won the state championship, which is an incredible amount of work for them. And I was so proud of them. And it was really fun to see these kids grow and learn. And I told them uh, we would always have a dinner at the end of the season, and we would kind of give out some awards. And I always said, mock trial should be mandatory in every high school because it teaches you public speaking, which nobody knows how to do. It teaches you how to argue both sides of a a point so you can understand that there are two sides of a point, which we don't seem to understand in this country very well anymore. Uh, It teaches you a little bit about the law and a little bit about how the law works. Respect, hopefully, for the law and how our system of laws works. So uh, the mock trial team is, I ranked that in one of my top five accomplishments was coaching her mock trial team. There was something special that you did at the end of that. Um, of the mock trial term with your teams. And I'd like for the rest of the world to know what that is. My favorite book of all time is To Kill a Mockingbird. My favorite character of all time is Atticus Finch, not only because he's a lawyer, but just because he's a wonderful father and he, he has his, he knows how, how things go. And so I would give the kids a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird as a gift from, from me to them for their work during the year. And I would underline a couple of the passages in the book that I thought were life lessons. And um, one of them being you have to walk a mile in the other guy's shoes to understand what the other guy's going through. Um, So I I gave them a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. A little bit of empathy, too. I think I give it to people that I also know and love. I know I've given a copy to Joey. I had a good friend who moved away about two weeks ago. I gave her a copy. When you were coaching the mock trial team, Something stood out to me because you said they constantly would ask questions. Why do we do it this way? Why do why do we say this? What does this mean? Did you have answers for all of those questions? Well, I tried, but <laughs> the the best part was that they challenged me and, you know, and, and they were creative. These kids were incredibly smart, incredibly talented, incredibly creative. They would come up with ideas that I never would have thought about. Stogie old, you know, middle-aged lawyer, I would never come up with some of the ideas that they came up with. And as you guys probably know, a lot of mock trial is presentation and theater. And so these kids were really good at theater. They loved that part of it. Joey, when you came back then and went to law school, um, how was that experience for you after you'd experienced all the rest of the world? Well, so I I experienced um, travel while in law school as well. So, uh, again, very, very fortunate. I was able to um, go to law school and work at a law firm in China for a summer. Um, That was the summer between my 1L and 2L year. Then I returned returned to Japan um, or went to Japan my spring semester of my 2L year. So from January... 2009 to May of 2009. Then um, from there, I got a fellowship to work and live in Southeast Asia, where I worked in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and Hanoi, Vietnam. Um, And then I returned back to Albany, New York for law school to finish off. So um, I I just kept traveling. I I will never stop traveling and uh, experiencing. 
And then your law, your law experience in, in the United States after you graduated from law school. What was that? Oh, so I graduated in 2010, and I'm sure so many people talk about how there, you know, it was in the, in the middle of the recession. There weren't any jobs, which is true. Um, I took the New York bar exam, passed that, but did not feel like that's where I wanted to stay. Um, came back to Colorado, took the Colorado bar exam, passed that. Started working for Colorado Legal Services initially as a volunteer attorney because I was admitted into New York, so I was licensed, but I wasn't licensed yet in Colorado. Uh, While I was working for Colorado Legal Services as a volunteer attorney, I was approached by another attorney while on a date with my now husband um, who owned a restaurant in town, and he was telling me how he had just picked up a case in California, specifically representing Catherine Jackson and the estate of Michael Jackson. And of course, me being the skeptic that I am and being the loud voice that I was mentioning earlier, I challenged him on that. And uh, lo and behold, after going home and Googling him, he really was Catherine Jackson's attorney. So um, he had uh, he had told me that if I was interested in helping him out to send him his resume, my resume, excuse me, but I didn't have an email or a phone number or an, a mailing address. He, again, he just said, Google me, a typical lawyerly response, right? You don't know who I am? Google me. Um, so like I said, I did, and I ultimately sent him my resume, and the rest is history. I joined his firm, took the California bar exam, failed the first time, passed the second, then started working on the estate of Michael Jackson, as well as other cases. I did mass tort litigation and a few, dabbled in a few other things that were way above what I should, in my opinion, have done, um, just because I was so timid as a young lawyer. Eventually, uh, went away from, I I didn't feel like it was a good fit long-term for my career, staying with that firm and decided to join a local firm in Colorado Springs, hopped around a little bit until I met Dave. And then I was pretty determined that I was going to work with Dave and he didn't know it at the time, but eventually he gave me a job offer. And again, here I am. You two share an, an, an interesting, another interesting phenomenon I didn't know about, which is that you thought you were punching above your weight when early on in your legal career, taking on cases that maybe were above you. Dave, when you were two years out, could you tell our our audience what happened to you? I went to work in St. Louis. I went to St. Louis University Law School and then graduated, went to work for a criminal law defense firm in St. Louis. I knew all through law school I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. Um, and so I got this job, and I, I got uh, appointed to a lot of cases, which this firm was two former public defenders who went into private practice, and they got a ton of appointments. So first two years I was out of law school, I probably tried eight or nine felony cases, but they were, you know, burglaries and robberies and stuff like that. And then I get appointed to a capital murder case, um, three victims, very, very sad, very tragic case. And I was appointed to represent one of three co-defendants. And um, my co-defendant um, was the last guy on the on the train, so to speak, because the other two took deals and pled and then pointed the finger at my guy. And there wasn't much my guy could do. My guy basically said he was not there. He had an alibi. And so we went to trial. This was the first 
death penalty case in St. Louis County after the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty. So we had a brand new law dealing with the bifurcated trial of guilt phase and penalty phase that had never been done before. And so um, I tried that case by myself without an investigator. Um, at the end of the day, uh, the jury convicted him, uh, partly because it was such a horrendous crime and a very sad story, and somebody needed to be responsible. The other two guys took plea deals for manslaughter in 10 years, so there was nobody that was really going to pay much of a price. So the jury convicted him, but they did not give him the death penalty, I'm pretty sure, because they really did not know who the shooter was. Um, and I tried mightily to point the finger at the other two guys as being the shooters. But anyway. For you to have done that all by yourself without co-counsel sitting at the chair in these days when it's a capital case. Oh, you got a f- five lawyers and 18 investigators. And you had a judge who was not necessarily the most attentive. Is Well, he when the verdict came in on the guilt phase, it came in late at night. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And I'd kept the jury out for like eight hours, so I, you know, felt maybe, but it didn't happen. So he brings us back to Chambers, and he was a good judge, I, I, but he, he, we were all sailing out on unknown waters here. And he brought the two lawyers back into the Chambers and said, I'm not sure what to do next because we're not done yet. We have to do this penalty phase, and I've got a whole set of instructions I have to give the jury for the penalty phase. And I... So the, the prosecutor and I had had a good relationship, and we got along. And so we said, Judge, you know, I, I'm not planning to put on any evidence. He wasn't planning on putting on any evidence. So we just basically came back in the morning, made our closing arguments, and he read the jury instructions for the death penalty. And there you go. They were only out for like 40 minutes before they came back with the life without parole. I reflect on that many times of having somebody's life in your hands, and people had said to me, if he's, if he's given the death penalty, do you have to go watch that happen? And I said, I don't know, but I know that that, that, that does happen where the defense lawyers will be present to observe the execution, I suppose, to make sure that it's done properly. Not that you can execute anybody properly, but nonetheless. I had, a, I had an experience there, if I digress a minute. That experience made me a, a firm believer that the death penalty should not be uh, employed by the state, not because there aren't people who commit crimes who deserve the death penalty, but because of what it does to everybody who's in our community who has to help make that decision. So we had 12 jurors who had to coolly and calmly decide whether or not to sentence somebody to death. If they had, then you have a judge who's got to then do that sentence. And then you've got a whole slew of appellate judges who have to then decide if that sentence should stand. And by the end of the day, you've got you know, 30, 40 people, good people in the community, who have now had to make a decision to kill somebody and I, I think that's not good for our community and for our system. So I've, I've been an opponent of the death penalty for that reason ever since that trial. Joey, in your notion of leadership with regard to the Colorado Bar, you've talked about storytelling. And um, when you had said that, I found a quote that says, 
When you don't listen to someone, you make them invisible. And I immediately thought of your storytelling thing and, and how you're now supposed to lead this, this crew of, of, of lawyers. Herding cats. <laughs> Did the two of you discuss this position that you each found yourself in over time? So, you know, I, I, I go back to what I said at the very beginning. I have a loud voice, um, and I speak it when I feel like I want to say something. Um, when it comes to Dave and I, I think we have a really good relationship where he balances me. Um, sometimes I want to speak more than listen. He has taught me the value of listening um, just as much as my travels abroad have taught me how to listen and to be present and truly be here for whoever I'm interacting with. Um, it's not easy. Obviously, especially as a litigator, you always want to pursue your your next big argument and pound it in that you're right and the other side's wrong. Um, but it is just so incredibly crucial. And some of the best moments, I mean, our offices used to be right next to each other, but then I moved down um, the hall a little bit. And so now I have to walk down to, to see him. So I don't talk to Dave as much as I used to because I used to be in his room like pretty much every hour talking about something because I'm a... I like to process information by talking it out. You know, that's who I am. I had to put a limit on her. I told yeah, her 25% of your day you can come into my office. No, no, no. I think I'm at I'm at 30% now. <laughs> I think you bumped it up a little bit because of the the leadership role that I'm in now. Yeah. So I, I think he, he gave me that as a Christmas gift. <laughs> and because now you have to make the walk. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, it takes an extra sec, like 30 seconds now. I mean, come on. Uh, but no, he's... Uh, He's an absolute great listener and very gives me sage advice on how to handle situations that are difficult. And we are all presented with those on a daily basis, whether it's through our job, personal lives, or leadership positions. Dave, as you're um, moving along in this career, what's your game plan next? A lot of trout fishing, a lot of travel. Um, my daughter lives in Richmond, Virginia, and I uh, want to see more of her if I can. Um, I like to travel. I, I want to travel while I'm still reasonably healthy. And um, so uh, I'm actually leaving next week for a week on the Bighorn River for the first time in my life. I'm going to do some fly fishing on the Bighorn, and uh, I've heard nothing but good things about it. So I'm hoping to do a lot more of that uh, in the next probably two years, I'll probably fold my tent. And Dave, you've been practicing for 37 years? 45. Four, wow, I way underestimated. You've been practicing for 45 years. Coming up September 11th is my 45th anniversary. I was sworn in on September 11th, 1976. So the trout are calling your name. They are, yep, yep. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> He's... He's not going anywhere. I know where he lives. I'll haul him back in. <laughs> and I've also heard that sometimes it takes a few tries at retirement before it actually sticks. Well, I'm 72, so I'm 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 of retirement age. Uh, the people that I've known who've retired and unretired several times usually retire when they're like 60, and they get bored. Um, I don't think I'm going to be bored when I retire. I'm, I'm hopefully, I'm going to have enough to keep myself busy. 
including coming back into the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if she'll give me a place to read my paper and drink my coffee, I'll come in a couple days a week and hang out. Well, I need my 30% of venting time, so you need to come into the office well, still. That's why they invented Zoom. I think this means you'll be getting a generous offer, Dave, yeah. from Joey. The same offer you gave me <laughs> with a generous salary. Um, Joey, with, with all the diversity stuff that goes on in the world today, the Black Lives Matter and the Asian hate stuff and the Me Too movement and all this stuff that seems so divisive these days and yet is so important, how do you anticipate being able to to move that along uh, or parts of that along in your presidency? Listening. Um, I think we have to stop and listen to each other, hear what we all need from each other, and work together collaboratively to make change. Um, you use the word divisive, and I would agree that it, it, it can be divisive, but it but why is it? Why why should it be? I mean, it's it, it shouldn't be. It's a humanitarian issue. Why can't we, as diverse as we are in our nation, stop for a second, look around, and just start creating a relationship with everyone around us? And when we start doing that, we start breaking down these barriers and the walls that that honestly history is created. Then we we can move forward. But we're, we get stuck. We allow history to control and guide us. Yes, we need to be aware of it. Yes, we need to know about it. Yes, we need to do our best not to repeat it. But we shouldn't relive it on a daily basis. And it's up to us to start creating that change through, again, listening and creating these relationships that all it takes is sitting down with somebody and talking to them and hearing their stories. Well, thank you. Thank you both for your commitment, for your service, for your time, for always making time. Um, and I know that both of you just make time for people who knock on your door, send you emails that you've never even met before. And that's very meaningful as well. So thanks for coming down. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. Yes. And Pleasure to be here. I yeah. appreciate it. Pleasure is ours. Thank you. No, no, thank you, Bonnie. Thank you, Nicole. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Maureen Watson, Nicole Sparaza, Sumi Lee, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producers and editors are Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza, with introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.